Hello and welcome once again to Rasslin Memories on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. Also available online at RadioNorthland.org. And you can pick us up too, live and in the moment, on TuneIn. That fine little old app that's FRWE free. Hi, Glenn Brockett with you, uh, along with my co-host way down there deep in the heart of Texas. Uh, good to be able to uh, get back and chatting with him. It's been a couple of weeks since we've uh, done, done a program uh, uh, Mike McCurdy, the Grizzled Vet. How are you, my friend? Uh, boy, it seems like we haven't talked in quite a, quite some time. Well, you and I have talked, you know, off air, you know, off you know, in the last few weeks. But no, no, getting together for an episode of Wrestling Memories. It's been a few weeks, but you know, we got some more guests lined up coming up in the future here. So people people will hear more of our dulcet tones. But no, things are doing pretty good. A little humid here in the state of Texas right now. We're back up into the seventies since we got out of. You know, getting into springtime, so sure. all that fun stuff. Love 70 degrees and humidity. It's awesome. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you had a little... man just getting ready, you know, WrestleMania around the corner, so. Yeah, that is coming up awful, awful, awful fast here. And uh, up here in northwestern Minnesota at the moment of this taping, it is looks like it's uh, mid-January. So much snow. It's just uh, tire. It's a, it's the biggest eyesore you can get at this point uh, after making it through so much winter. But yeah, but at least, you know it was about uh, a week and a day of this of this taping that uh, I did venture up north of the border and I, I caught a, a really cool event up in Winnipeg, the big AEW uh, Dynamite taping. That was oh, that was fantastic. I, I, I they put on a great show up there. Canada Life Center uh, up in Winnipeg, downtown Winnipeg, great arena. Uh, the place was uh, just packed with rabid wrestling fans. There was a hot crowd from start to finish. Uh, I, I watched, ended up watching the TV uh, when I got back the next day, and it was really, really fun. I went with a buddy of mine, and we also went with a mutual friend of ours, Mike, uh, special guest Jamie Hemmings, who uh, came up with and sat with us. Uh, we had an extra ticket because another friend of ours was unfortunately unable to go with another, he had another prior commitment. So we were able to have Jamie uh, with us and uh, it was kind of fun to uh, sit and chat, uh, actually chat in person with someone we've had some correspondence with, Mike. Yeah, I saw that you uh, you had an extra ticket there. She jumped on that one. So, <laughs> But uh, no, it sounds like you guys had a fun time. It was a great show. I watched it on TV, obviously, but you know. Not a lot of people have gone to dynamite tapings, and they always say that the uh, environment at a live show is different from, uh, you know, what you see on TV. There's a lot of interaction, and you know, Tony Khan appearances, and a lot of you know, dark rampage, a lot of tapings. Did you stay for any of those? Oh well, well, with the beginning when we got in, uh, and the doors were open at five, then the matches were starting at six. We got there a few minutes before six, and. Uh, I think there was a sky blue match already going on uh, when we we got to our seats and yeah we sat through the the, the dark matches uh, you know and the big show and by the time Rampage rolled around I had both Jamie and my other friend who was named Jamie by chance so we had a male and female Jamie how crazy is that uh, anyway they were both kind of tired and uh, yeah they just kind of wanted to call it call it good and uh, yeah so we left just before Rampage started. Uh, just before Tony kind of came out and was uh, starting to talk, I think he introduced uh, uh, Sarah Stock uh, as far as a new trainer uh, for AEW, Sarita. So that was yes. pretty cool. I mean, but I mean, I, I got to watch that basically as on the monitors as we were walking out. But thankfully, our hotel was right next to the venue, and uh, yeah, I'll go up there again. And I think Winnipeg. Uh, this won't be a one and done. If if Tony's going to be playing smart, the the people behind the booking, all that, I think it would be in their best interest. Uh, even before uh, I think before Chris Jericho retires, to have a pay per view up there and and maybe set up the uh, the ultimate final match between him and Kenny Omega. I would love to see that. Watch Kenny Omega last night. Uh, before this taping, uh, saw him versus uh, Vikingo. <laughs> that was an amazing match. Oh, that was fantastic! I mean, the first time uh, audiences in in the states, mainstream, uh, were able, were exposed to this t- uh, wonderful talent, and uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of people kind of the the gripe on it was there wasn't a whole lot of build up into this match. It became just a dream match, just hot off the heels of the big trios match in Winnipeg. But I mean, yeah, it could have been great with a big bunch of promotion. But hey. They did what they did, and I I thought it was fantastic. This guy has got some upside. You want to talk about an heir apparent to like a Rey Mysterio, and plus doing his own thing and having his own character. This is probably the guy. 
Oh, definitely. There are a few spots in that match where I actually had to reverse back just to figure out how did he do that. Because it's like he's standing one direction, and then he flips another direction, and then the next thing you know, he's doing a Hurricane Rana followed by a flying knee through the ring. You're like, wait, I'm going to reverse back. Oh, 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 okay, that's how he does it. All right, all right. I, I think that's my, how he did I, I think my back went out just watching some of those spots. But, yeah, that was a, a night. Uh, we're going to be talking about a gentleman today that uh, wasn't necessarily known for uh, – uh, any El Vikingo uh, high spots. But boy, what he didn't do in high spots, he made up for with personality and just uh, just being a character in and of itself through many incarnations. I'm talking about the uh, wrestler known as Adrian Adonis, Mike. And not too long ago, uh, we were able to get a copy of this wonderful, wonderful book uh, by our guest today, Flowers for Adrian, The Life and Death of Adrian Adonis. And... Mike, I really enjoyed taking a look uh, back at a guy who, you know, through the years, everybody, uh, it seemed like there was a good steady stream of pro wrestlers putting out books or people writing books about pro wrestlers. This is the man I kind of waited for. This was on my list of people I really was looking forward to reading a a biography of. I'm still waiting for the Jim Barnett one, but Adrian Adonis, this is really a a fantastic book. Mike, what are your thoughts? I enjoyed the book. Um... Being, you know, my age, I don't did not know a lot about Adrian Adonis before, you know, I knew a lot of the WWF, obviously. Sure. Adorable Adrian Adonis, that's what I knew. Yeah. And obviously, we talked WrestleMania right around the corner. I remember the WrestleMania 3 match, I got to watch that, you know, on, uh, it was either play, pay-per-view or closed circuit. I'm not sure which they had transitioned to by that point. Yeah, you're old school like that. You can remember when they were doing the closed circuit theaters, like those, what, first three or four manias? Yes, yes, closed circuit. I'm not sure if WrestleMania 3 was uh, on a pay-per-view yet, but I do remember getting to watch it. And obviously, you know, Adrian Adonis versus Piper in the retirement match, which led to the creation of a very famous gimmick, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. But, no, I, I enjoyed the book because it gave me a chance to learn more because I love the history, and it gave me a chance to learn more about Adrian Adonis and more of his career and his life before going to WWF and becoming adorable. Oh, yeah, even before he became the character of Adrian Adonis, the life of a Keith Frankie was very fascinating in and of itself. Mike, let's uh, bring in uh, the author of this book. You want to give him the introduction he so richly deserves. Well, as we said, the, the book is titled Flowers for Adrian, the Life and Death of Adrian Adonis. And our guest this week is the author of that book. Uh, we're going across the pond for this interview. We are being joined this week by Mr. John Elul. John, welcome to the show. Hi guys, thank you for having me, Glenn, Mike. Thanks very much for having me on. Thanks for uh, having a look at the book and, and bringing it to your to your listeners. Um, yeah, speaking to you now from uh, from rainy old England. <laughs> so we all have the elements of weather here. We got Mike in the in the humidity, the early stages of Texas humidity. You got us up here waiting for uh, winter to leave, and then we got soggy old England over on your end. It's the exactly. perfect triangle of uh, of weather here. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, yeah. So um, as you as you both expertly explained there, um, a book, uh, a biography um, authorized by um, Adrian or Keith, as his real name was, Keith Frankie, um, uh, by his family, his widow and his two daughters um, written with their help. Um, and just a, a bit of a labor of love that I've written over the last several years side project that I've had while I've been you know working and and having a normal life as everyone does and um, yeah just all came together in the last few months and and have have published uh, self-published online and uh, out today and uh, yeah really fascinating character that that I think has been overlooked a little over the years and so yeah nice to bit give give him a little extra spotlight I think. Mm -hmm. Now I'd like to know uh, I was kind of always my go-to question to begin with is what is your background in uh in with with wrestling you know a fan a writer you know yeah yeah well a little uh, a little bit of both i would say uh, primarily a, a fan uh i got into wrestling in the early 90s so um i missed all of um adrian adonis's heyday i never watched him um while he was alive because he died in 1988 obviously um but wrestling fan since about 30 years ago as i've said and um always wanted uh, some kind of project to to put my you know creative skills towards on a professional level uh, trained uh, journalist and i've been uh, a journalist in the past in the uk uh, on on newspapers uh, i currently i work in in the murky world of, of 
PR and, and communications and media and that kind of thing. And uh, a side project that I've had for the last few years is I'm a writer for the magazine that we have over here in the UK called Wrestle Talk that you may have heard of. Oh, yeah, they, yeah. they have a, a YouTube channel uh, and uh, on all that kind of thing. And they also have a a, uh, a magazine which is very popular. So I'm a feature writer for Wrestle Talk. And um, yeah, it was uh, so this book is really the marrying of, of my kind of professional uh, professional skills of being a, a writer journalist and 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 wanting something with my my first love of wrestling to write about that no one had written about before so so yeah it came together quite nicely I just recently discovered uh, Russell talk I they had a sale on some back issues uh, recently so I like binged and bought like 10 issues so I'm gonna have to take a look and I haven't <laughs> had a chance to go through them yet but I'm gonna have to take a look at those uh, I am a the reader of Inside the Ropes, which is another one from uh, over yes. in the UK. So, but very interested in uh, wrestle talk. I'm always I'm always looking for a wrestling magazine because unfortunately over here in the states we have Pro Wrestling Illustrated, and that's about it. There's been a there's been a real renaissance, and um, we're really lucky. It's a it's a bit of a golden age, you know. I don't know if it's because of the market of um, older fans in their thirties, forties, fifties who who miss, like you say, having um, physical uh, wrestling magazines to go into a shop and buy. But um, uh, I've not seen this many wrestling magazines in in British shops since I was a kid, you know, since the nineties. So um, yeah, we're doing okay. Uh, Wrestle talk inside the ropes. Um, we get PWI and there's probably another one or two that I'm forgetting as well, but um, there's been a bit of a renaissance. So yeah, picked my opportunity well uh, to, to start writing for one of those magazines over here. So you mentioned you got into wrestling and started watching in 90, obviously your Don has passed away in uh, 88. What, brought you to Adrian Adonis as the subject of a book that you wanted to work on? I think I always, in the early 90s, there was a few, obviously my, my go-to point as a, as a kid was the WWF, um, being in the UK, that was the one that we got on TV, and very quickly um, I married that together with reading about wrestling and learning about the history of wrestling in the Aptomags, in Pro Wrestling Illustrated and Inside Wrestling. And so that's how things progressed. And I very quickly in, you know, circa 92, 93, started reading these very morbid stories about wrestlers who'd passed away. Um, there was obviously several high-profile wrestlers in short succession of Dino Bravo and Kerry Von Erich and Andre the Giant, all in very, very different circumstances. And there was another one that would get mentioned from time to time in PWI called Adrian Adonis. And I kind of made a bit of a mental note at that age of, you know, that tender age of, of young, being a young kid watching wrestling and reading wrestling magazines of, I must find out about, more about this guy. He, he seems kind of interesting, kind of fascinating. And I was always kind of fascinated about how no one ever seemed to mention him and WWF never seemed to mention him. Whereas, you know, there's a fair bit of talk, rightly so, about people like Andre the Giant. But, so I always had this bit of perception in my mind that, he'd been kind of forgotten about and maybe I'm right, maybe not. But, um, and then as I got older, you know, I returned back to it and I thought, here's a topic, um, that no one's really looked at, uh, in great detail. Um, there's never been a book written about him. There's a few articles online. Um, there's never, never been a, a DVD about him. Could this be a project for me to, to do some, some investigation and find out a bit more about him and it, it just kind of mushroomed from there and turned into a, a whole book project so um it was we all have those wrestlers that we have a spot a soft spot for you know um that we hold close to our hearts for some reason maybe it's because we saw them in a match maybe it's because we wanted to find out more about them and and he was you know one of those collection of wrestlers that i always told myself i needed to go and find out more about and uh, maybe had been a bit underserved over the years so so yeah that's probably the genesis of where it came from those those early years of reading up on him now you got you said you got uh, authorization or permission from the family um, when you decided to start this project you know what was the process uh, that you began with in reaching out to the family what was their initial reaction? Because I found when I reach out to people sometimes for a story I'm doing or if I'm doing some research and I have a couple questions, sometimes they're very kind of like hesitant to talk to yeah. people. It's, it's, that's what I expected, you know. Um, I expected, rightly so, a bit of hesitancy, a bit of, a bit of nervousness. Um, 
I've, I'm used to that um, from my previous career as a journalist. My, you know, it was my day job to to phone up people and ask to interview them, and and a lot of the time those people didn't want to be interviewed. So I um, I was expecting perhaps a, a frosty reception, but. I did months and months of research. I did lots and lots of reading up and online and in books about Adonis's, you know, match history, about his angles and his gimmicks and all this type of thing. And I had lots and lots of notes and I had a plan laid out about what I was going to write about. And I had a list of people I wanted to interview. And I kept coming back to this idea in my head that this isn't worth doing without the family's um, backing you know they don't have to co-write it with me but I need them to say that they're happy for me to do it I need them to tell me that you know that I have their blessing um, if someone was writing a book about you know one of my parents or, or someone in my family I would want to know about it and I would want to give my blessing and I would want to know about it so um, that was kind of the make or break for me and I thought I'm going to contact you know I'm going to go <clears throat> for the most important person which is Keith's um, widow, who is called B. Um, her name is B Hall, and um, I'm going to try and find out if I can find some contact details for her. Be very honest and explain myself about what I'm trying to achieve and why, and um, and just see what she says. And if she'd come back and said, "No, I don't like the sound of this. I don't like the idea about this. I don't want any books written about him," um, would that have stopped me? I don't know. It would have definitely made me think twice about is this worth pursuing. Um, because I think it's important when you're going out there talking about the book to, to be able to say honestly that you've got the family's support. Um, managed to find her on social media, I contacted her, and um, yeah, we had a great conversation, really, really lovely. And um, from there, we've been in kind of e-contact, uh, email contact for, uh, for, for the last few years. Um, it, it was, it was um, difficult at times to get B um, to open up for an interview. Um, I think it opened up a lot of, um, you know, difficult memories for her um, of, of, of when, particularly when Keith died. Um, but what she did do, um, she did give, you know, a lot of information. But what she did do is she put me in contact with her two daughters and I spent several hours interviewing um, his two daughters who are called Angela and Gina. And um, one of them was only a baby when he died, so doesn't have a lot of first-hand knowledge of him. But the other one was um, significantly older and had lots and lots of anecdotes and memories. And yeah, so just taking it uh, kind of in the round to have all three of them on side, as it were, and, and happy with what I was doing. Um, but I also maintained that that editorial independence. I, you know, it's it's still an honest look. It. it it refers to problems he had in his life and his attitude problems and stuff. It it wasn't a case of every time I'd write a chapter, I'd then show it to the family and ask their permission to include it. It's, you know, it's independently written. They haven't edited it. And um, yeah, so, so yeah, pleasantly surprised and, and, and very happy to, to be able to um, kind of tell his story as it were. And it's, I think from the family's point of view, what was interesting speaking to his daughters was they lived a lot of their life um, not knowing that he was that he was that famous, if you like, um, which sounds a bit funny. But they, you know, came came to learning about his career relatively recently since about 2020, 2019. His two daughters, you know, had lived their whole lives. They're in their like 30s now um, and hadn't really taken the time to look on YouTube and look at his his following and how much was written about him online. So speaking to them and, and, and going through that kind of journey with them of them seeing what a big deal he was in this industry um, was really fascinating. So so yeah, that was that was the, the starting point for and then from there, you know, moved on to um, recruiting other people to speak to that either knew him or, or, or knew a lot about him. So that's yeah, that's probably where it got started. What were some of the other uh, people you reached out to that uh, contributed to the book? <clears throat> yeah, um, number of people. What I what I tried to do was the um, uh, the the structure of the book, if you like, um, goes from territory to territory. Because one thing about Adrian Adonis is he never stayed long um, in in a territory. So even though his career was relatively short, he wrestled for about fourteen years in between his debut match and his death 
um, he he packed, um, you know, he, he, he went back and forth between about 10 different territories in that time. So my aim essentially was to speak to at least one person from uh, one, uh, one of those territories. So someone who could tell me what he was like in 86 in WWF, someone who could tell me what he was like in 1983 when he was in Southwest Championship Wrestling, um, something like that. And uh, so to answer your question, probably some of the bigger names that your um, that your listeners have heard of uh, would be Jerry Briscoe, um, who obviously worked behind the scenes for many, many years in WWE and who is a Hall of Famer and, you know, was a NWA legend with his brother. Um, and he had a couple of different experiences. What was fascinating was several of the people that I talked to, Jerry Briscoe being one of them, um, was able to compare what Adonis was like earlier in his career when they when they wrestled with him in the 70s, when he was thin, when he didn't go by the name Adrian Adonis, he went by the name Gorgeous Keith Franks. Um, and then they were able to compare that to what he was like in 86 and 87 when he was really, really bloated and he had the gay gimmick. So Jerry Briscoe, uh, Don Morocco was really, really generous with his time. Um, they were really close personal friends, so he got quite emotional when I was interviewing him, uh, which was um, which was interesting to hear. Um, he he wrestled uh, with Adonis back in Florida uh, in the early parts of their career, and obviously in the WWF. Uh, spoke to um, uh, Lanny Poffo in what might be one of the last interviews possibly that he did um, before he died. He wrestled with Adonis in the WWF again, but also in the Carolinas. Um, Adonis had a brief spell in the Carolinas. Uh, Rick Rogers, who worked with him in Portland. Um, and Terry Daniels, which might be a, a name, a bit of a blast from the past, um, that WWF fans might remember from the mid-80s, who was uh, briefly in a in an angle with Sergeant Slaughter. Terry Daniels had a really famous match in Amarillo um, with Adonis. And I think that might be, you know, a rare interview that he's given. I tracked him down. And um, Tully Blanchard as well, um, who worked with Adonis and had a short-lived tag team with him in um, Southwest Championship Wrestling, which was a bit of a, an outlaw promotion, if you like, um, in 1983 that they both worked for, for Joe Blanchard. Um, beyond actual active wrestler, not active, but um, beyond actual wrestlers, um, there were a number of uh, wrestling historians and journalists that I spoke to, uh, Bill Apter, um, Greg Oliver, who's obviously a very noted um, uh, uh, wrestling author, uh, who runs a slam wrestling website, uh, Dave Meltzer, um, and a Japanese uh, journalist and historian called Fumi Saito, who had a really, really interesting perspective, um, as well as following Adrian's career um, in Japan. Uh, he was able to give the New Japan perspective and also in the AWA uh, where he used to follow them as a, as a journalist. They made really really close personal friends and um, they um, a, he ended up going around uh, to Adrian's house um, for a visit in 1985 and there's a kind of fascinating little um, scenario that he describes of going around Adrian's house and kind of living with him for a week to report on him and um, yeah so um, so yeah those are just some names off the top of my head. So you know, with Fumi uh, he, you know it's crazy that he was a student on exchange students uh, in Minnesota and he was able to catch uh, Adrian during his days uh, working for Vern and, and and teaming up with Adrian our team of Jesse Ventura I mean. Yeah yeah exactly. Um, that was really fascinating, and um, he was my main kind of my main source of what uh, what was uh, what it was like in the AWA. And the way he described it was, he was backstage. You know, he was very young. He was he was you know like a, a student, like you say. And Jesse and Adrian were two of the only people that would speak to him and would be polite to him because AWA at this time was obviously. Um, an older, an older uh, generation of wrestlers, predominantly, you know, Mad Dog and Vern Gagne and um, people like that, uh, very, very kayfabe. And then backstage, there's this young Japanese journalist walking around and Adrian and Jesse were the first ones to say, hey, come and sit with us, um, take some photos of us. And that connection stayed with him, uh, uh, with Adrian and, and Fumi, when he would then go on tours from 1982, he would start going on tours of New Japan and... Um, and and they actually they they linked up for the final time 
uh, a couple of weeks before Adrian's death in 1988, and they had kind of a bit of a reunion, which was which was quite sentimental for Fumi to speak about, which was interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, another uh, person I want to talk about that you unfortunately just due to his passing were unable to get a chance to talk with, but was really like a kindred spirit uh, to Adrian was and a man of course we talked about WrestleMania 3 was his partner in the ring that day for his uh, retirement match slash hair match I'm talking about Rowdy uh, Roddy Piper and this was goes back way before the WWF this was a, a, a friendship uh, that really it was it was two guys you know but Adrian he grew up he was adopted Piper he felt like he was his own orphan these were guys that just kind of found each other at the right time and and really kind of understood each other. Let's just talk about how they met, the extent of their friendship, and just how long and enduring that was, not just in the ring. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Piper talked about this quite a lot increasingly towards the end of his life. Um, and I don't know if it was well known until he did. Obviously, back when they were working together in the 80s, there wasn't social media there wasn't people going on podcasts and talking like this but in the last few years of his life before he passed away in 2015 and in both of the books um, well one book that he's written and one book that was written about him by his family Piper talked extensively about his his friendship um, with Adrian Adonis and it went beyond just them being colleagues and co-workers and you know friendly with each other backstage they really were best friends and um, I don't think and it's difficult for me, at least, to, to look back at that WrestleMania three match without without seeing that now that they were they were such close personal friends, and um, it puts a, a new perspective when you when you think about it like that. And um, they got uh, I, th I I believe if I'm um, I'm trying to remember my notes um, they were first um, introduced to each other in the California territory. Um, I want to say 1978, and they were both very very young in their career. They both the same age. Um, I think it was both 22 and um, they had a tag team, a brief tag team called the 22s and basically what would happen, what they would find is organically they would work together in a territory and then they would find their way back to each other. So mm -hmm. after working in the Californias uh, they then um, they then reconnected and worked together extensively in Portland in 1979 and um, they had a like a blistering uh, feud um, when uh, Adonis was in a tag team with Ron Starr um, and then obviously they reconnected once more in the WWF and what is really interesting um, about the Wrestlemania match obviously we're only a few days out from Wrestlemania 39 these guys wrestled at Wrestlemania 3 um, I call it in the book um, one of the first ever WrestleMania moments. We 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 use that phrase a lot nowadays. The WWF has, uh, WWE rather has, has has you know commodified that phrase of WrestleMania moment. The match, um, the hair cutting um, between Piper and Adonis is is a real moment. Um, what's really interesting is that almost ten years earlier to the day in in March nineteen seventy eight prior, uh, March 1977 rather, prior to WrestleMania 3, these guys wrestled in a, in a cage match and, um, and they had also previously wrestled in hair matches against each other 10 years earlier. Um, so they knew each other really, really well and, um, and it was almost uh, a little bit of a parting gift uh, from Adonis to put over Piper that strongly at WrestleMania 3. If you go back and watch it, that match is only actually six and a half minutes long. But, you know, he throws himself um, and he's he's so big at that point, Adonis, that he can barely move. But he throws himself around that ring so, so much. You would think he was Shawn Michaels or Ric Flair, the way he does his bumps in the corner. And, you know, that was that was his gift, if you like, to, to Piper, that I'm going to make you look like a million dollars and you're going to, you know, beat the heck out of me. Mm. And, um, and Piper spoke a lot after after he gave the eulogy at Adonis's funeral he spoke a lot in later life before he passed away about what they meant to each other um you reference glenn their 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 tricky upbringings that they both had so i think they they saw something in each other about how they'd had difficult childhoods to some extent and they they, they identified with each other they would give each other advice about how to start you know what they should do with their families and where they should live and um what my research kind of brought forth was um, 
the only times or some of the only times during the 90s and the noughties when Adonis would be mentioned on TV would be when Piper would mention him. And if you go back and look now, you'll, you'll spot them. In 1996, when Piper feuds with Goldust at WrestleMania 12, there are promos there when he mentions Adrian Adonis. In, in um, I think it's 98, there's a, a, there's a, a promo where um, Piper loses his temper um, uh, in, on WCW Nitro and he, and he reels off the names of lots of deceased wrestlers about how the industry had, had ruined lots of his friends and Adrian Adonis is obviously one of the names he mentions there. And then there's a really powerful promo um, that he did in the ring um, more recently with Chris Jericho and he describes the, um, he describes the like how sentimental he felt when people come up and talk to him about WrestleMania 3 so yeah they really were it's not it's not just a kind of convenient aspect of the book if you like they, they really were very very close indeed I think that's really kind of amazing too when you think about the players and the setup that led to the big match that were mm -hmm. all you know very much connected very you know because I mean not only with with Adrian's connection with with Roddy but you also have Bob Orton, who Adrian worked with in Southwest and other territories, and, and Don Morocco, who those guys were kind of the setup guys for what led to the, the big match with the big flower shop versus Piper Pit thing. So it, I just think it was quite a kick that four guys like that who had such you know strong associations and, and, and friendships through the years were able to have that big part of that stage of WrestleMania three or leading up to three uh, with, with Roddy and Adrian. It's it's fascinating. They were um, they were a bit of a a crew backstage, which I hadn't fully realised. Um, uh, Piper, Adonis, um, Morocco, and Orton. They were they were kind of a, a bit of a clique that, that would run around together and they would travel together. Um, and I think they were they were responsible in kind of '86 for, for taking the Heart Foundation under their wing backstage. So Brett and Jim Neidhart. Um, you know, Brett describes in his book um, being kind of mentored a little bit by Morocco and Piper and Adonis and getting up to all sorts of trouble with those guys on the road. Um, and yeah, to see them all kind of travel through, Orton, uh, uh, Bob Orton um, reconnected um, with Adonis and um, they reformed a tag team in the AWA in the kind of dying days of the AWA in 1988 as well, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, what, what people may not realise and I won't give away everything that's written in the book, is that that match very nearly didn't happen at WrestleMania 3 because in October um, of 1986, the previous the previous uh, autumn, um, uh, Adonis was actually suspended. Um, it's very murky what the reason was, but it's, it's, it's apparent that his relationship with Vince McMahon Jr. was really, really strained. He was really, really unreliable. Um, he, uh, he had substance abuse problems and he was being kept around basically for this feud with um with piper and i think it got to a point basically in october where vince um had enough of him and sent him home whether or not it was a um, firing or a suspension wasn't completely clear of uh you know scoured newsletters from the time and he was then brought back in November to resume the feud. But the talk in the newsletters at the time was that um, uh, Vince was going to try and see if it could continue with Piper feuding against Orton and Morocco instead. And it just wasn't catching. So he brought Adonis back and, and they did what they did. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, these 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 funny sliding doors moments. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And of course, Adrian's association with uh, the World Wrestling Federation extended back into the early 1980s when, uh, you know, he worked with him and uh, Jesse actually not only working in the AWA, but they did have a debut in the WWF uh, as a team and they worked some singles matches. But soon after, um, Bob Backlund and, and, and Adrian Adonis found themselves uh, in a, quite a series of matches in 1982. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about those early years of that, uh, his run in the WWF because as a singles competitor, because he eventually he ended up uh, around what eighty four, eighty five with Dick Murdoch as the North South connection. But talk about that little period of time where he was challenging for Backlund. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just in the way you just summarized it there, it just shows what Adonis packed into such a short span of time. You know, there was the AWA the um, uh, and a year-long reign as AWA Tag Team Champions back when that still meant something mm -hmm. um, with Jesse, who obviously went on to great things. 
they came over together in the end of 1981. Um, in October 19, 1981, they both came over together to the um, WWF. And what is quite interesting is that they worked both companies at the same time. So I don't know if there was an agreement worked out between Vern and, and Vince, uh, Vince Senior it would have been. Um, for three months at the end of 81, they worked both companies. And they were brought in as um, under the tutelage of um, Freddie Blassie. And with the idea being that while they acknowledged that they were a tag team, he was bringing them in as singles uh, main eventers to take the title off Backland. And if one didn't do it, the other would do it. And Backland goes into quite a lot of detail in his um, autobiography, which I've quoted um, portions of in this book. And uh, he basically makes it clear that this was the formula at the time, that a heel manager would bring in a, a new heel wrestler um, uh, or, or a stable of them and they would take turns in challenging him and then Backlund would, would turn back their challenge and retain the title. Mm. And um, Jesse, I believe, went first and had a couple of main events at Madison Square Garden and they were okay. They weren't great, but um, the thing that everyone who knows anything about Jesse and Adrian is Adrian was the worker, you know, Jesse was the talker and the muscle man. Um, so putting Jesse in a uh, kind of main event by himself against Bob Backlund is going to be pretty limited. And But Backlund, Adonis and Vince Senior quickly realised that they had something between the, the two of Backlund and Adonis. They headlined um, Madison Square Garden. It's an over 30 minute main event. It was, um, I would implore all your listeners to track it down um, on, uh, on Peacock or, or online if they can. Just a really, really kind of brutal fight, and they had a series of them. Um, one in Boston, one in uh, Landover, Maryland, and um, really, really brutal, hard-hitting fights. Um, kind of, you know, that really typical hard-hitting territories, um, early 80s kind of style. And um, I don't think there was ever any thought about taking the title off Backland and putting it on Adonis, but he looked every bit the Madison Square Garden main eventer. And... Um, but it, the, the 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 style at the time from Vince Senior was to then cycle the the cycle the headliners out, cycle the villains out of the headline picture and bring in bring in new heels. So by about the March of '82, Jesse and Adonis had kind of served their purpose to some extent, and they they reformed um, the East West Connection um, and started wrestling tags, whereas they'd been singles um, previously. And they wrestled. Um, they wrestled on a few more uh, Madison Square Garden cards, um, and uh, yeah, they they were gone by. They were gone by the summer of '82, and back to the AWA briefly. And in the following year, um, Adonis wrestled in Southwest Championship Wrestling, Joe Blanchard's territory. Um, and then the year after that, it was back to the WWF, and he formed another famous tag team, which was the North South Connection with Dick Murdoch. Um, who you know another another guy who doesn't get talked about very much. No, no. There's another gentleman who had a hell of a career in in, in both tag team and singles wrestling. Uh, you know, we we talk about eighty one, three eighty two, three eighty four. Uh, you know, in that time around eighty two, eighty three, uh, a certain uh, phenomenon was starting to catch a little steam called Hulkamania. I want to talk about just. I mean, in this book, I really kind of uh, got to really find out a little bit more about. The extent of just uh, the closeness uh, that both Hogan, Hulk Hogan, and Adrian had as, as friends as well. I mean, he, I mean, Adrian, they were both familiar with each other's spouses. I mean, this was something that I didn't really know too much about. I didn't know how close they were, but in your book, you talk about this uh, friendship. Yeah, exactly that, exactly that, and that was news to me. And uh, they Hulk, Hulk Hogan and Adrian Adonis were for a very long period. Um, very best friends, uh, much like the relationship between um, Adonis and Piper. And I think um, what the indications that I got with this started and they, they connected um, in the early 80s in the AWA um, and on their trips over when they started travelling over at the same time to New Japan because it would be the same core group of wrestlers that would travel over to Japan um, in 82, 83, 84. Um, Morocco would usually be with them, Andre the Giant would be with them, and there'd be um, the kind of similar cast of characters that would go over to, from the WWF and the AWA over to New Japan um, for these three or four week tours. They spent a lot of time together during that time, 
and they would always look out for each other. Their, their families, as you say, were, were friends with each other. Um, Adonis and uh, his wife Bee were at um, Hogan's wedding in 1983 to Linda. And yeah, just great friends. And that continued um, right up through until uh, they were in the WW, excuse me, WWF together in 85 and 86. What's interesting though is it seems to it seems to have petered out a little bit by 85, 86. So I don't know if superstardom for Hogan pulled him away from Adonis a little bit, or if Adonis's problems and and you know his him taking the eye off the ball um, created a bit of distance between them. But um, one of uh, the only time Hogan actually writes about uh, Adonis in in the two books that he's written is um, is when he describes. The heat that he got because there was a backstage fight uh, between Spivey and Adonis, Dan Spivey and Adonis, and um, Hogan was one of the people that broke it up and told the office, office about it, um, and he got a bit of heat for that because that goes against the wrestler's code apparently. And um, other than that, there's not much indication from Hogan's end, um, or there wasn't when he wrote those books uh, of the the previous friendship they had. But one one interesting kind of postscript to this is that Fumi the uh, the Japanese journalist that, that we mentioned earlier um, has also a relationship um, with Hogan, having interviewed him for many years in Japan. And he's been around Hogan's house or one of Hogan's houses. And he said that, you know, very, very recently, as, as recently as a few, a few years ago, he was at Hogan's house and there is still a picture of Adonis in, you know, on a mantelpiece in one of Hogan's houses. So he hasn't forgotten about him and, um, and they were still very close. And he does... You know, nowadays he does tweet about him on, on Twitter, you know, every few years and he and he has these kind of poignant moments where he thinks back to um to his old friend who who passed away. I wanna bring Mike McCurdy back into the conversation. Mike, I know you have a few more uh questions to ask uh, of our guests today. We've talked a lot about uh the friendship between Adrian and Roddy Piper. Um in the process of your book, did you get a chance to talk to any of Piper's family? No, unfortunately not. No, I did. I did reach out to Colt, um, his son, uh, who co-wrote the, uh, the second book about Piper. Um, but it was it was a, it was just a case of hit and miss, really. You know, um, the, the, the call went out for, to a lot of people. Um, uh, we've got, a, you know, a decent amount of interviews in the book, but um, the, the Piper family, the Tombs family would have been really, really useful. There's a lot of interesting information from the, the book that Piper wrote himself and the one that his children wrote about him, but no, wasn't wasn't able to pin them down. Um, likewise, Hogan, um, uh, he he politely declined an interview request um, as well um, via his manager. Um, but, uh, but no, everyone that I did get hold of is in the book, but sadly not Piper's family. I would have loved to have heard what story Hogan would have told, but. Uh... <laughs> One person I would have loved to have, again, I don't want to put your uh, your listeners off by listening to people who aren't in the book, but I rest, rest assured there is uh, you know copious amounts of information, even if certain people aren't interviewed. One person I would have loved would have been Jesse Ventura, and uh, I think he lived largely off the grid. Um, and uh, when I was speaking to, uh, obviously, the wrestling journalist Dave Meltzer, and I, I told him about my plans to get hold of Ventura, his, his response was, good luck. Um, so I don't think uh, Jesse gives many of those types of interviews. No, he's, he kind of strays away from that now, and uh, yeah, like you said, kind of off the grid and maybe a little out of his mind, but no, Ventura, I've known many people that have reached out to him for different projects and things like that, and he just doesn't. This thing, every once in a while he'll pop up on a podcast and talk his career and all that, but eh, Jesse kind of does Jesse now, so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, while working on the book, though, you know, you you got into wrestling watching it in '92. Obviously, by then the territories were gone. It was uh, WCW, WWF. Those were the main ones. When you're working on the book, you know, obviously you're learning about Adrian Adonis, but you're also learning about the uh, the territory system. And like you said, he went from one territory to the next, which was very common for the guys at that time. You know, what was it like as a learning experience for you? Not just about Adrian Adonis, but just of the wrestling business in general as far as territories and you know the wrestling scene of those years yeah it was really fascinating it was really really fascinating and that's part of the reason why it's structured as it is there's a you know a few chapters about his early life his childhood how he was trained and stuff like that and then the book really goes into kind of 
this chapter is about this territory, this chapter is about that territory, this chapter is about the next territory. And it takes you on a journey, um, and it took me on a journey. Um, so there's a whole chapter about Amarillo, which I knew nothing about. And um, it was this, this fascinating place where the likes of Dick Murdoch worked and a young Ted DiBiase, the Funks ran that, they inherited that territory um, from their dad, um, Tory Funk, Dory Funk uh, Senior. Um, there's the Southwest Championship Wrestling Territory that I've re referenced, which was the the first um, wrestling uh, show on the USA Network in 1983, prior to WWE getting on there. The AWA learned a lot about there, learned a lot about New Japan. Yeah, it was just a, a kind of exercise in okay, so today I'm going to research and write about Portland and I'm going to speak to Rick Rogers about, about what happened there and learning about the different promoters and what the different promoters were like, you know, which in the Portland area was Don Owen and, and uh, Elton Owen. And, um, it's, and it takes uh, readers um, on a kind of beginner's guide, if you like, to these certain territories that he moved into and, and that he moved across. He worked in Vancouver quite a lot. Um, and it's a it's a kind of book that people can can pick up and not just learn about Adonis. Says each of these chapters has a bit of the history and a bit of the background about what the situation was like in terms of you know were they on t local TV, um, what was the cast of characters that were wrestling in that in that area at that time, and so people can go away from this book with a bit of a almost a kind of beginner's guide education on some of the some of the key territories of the early 80s and late 70s and. And and it kind of created more of a thirst for me to learn more about the patchwork that we that we used to have in America of all these fascinating different areas. That was part of the book that I liked was the uh, the fact that you gave a little background into each territory and where they were because you know sometimes you know wrestling books obviously they are set for you know the wrestling fan but every once in a while it's nice to see a book that might get out to someone outside of the wrestling bubble who might just want to read about either. Into biographies, they want to read about an interesting character, but they wouldn't have that background, and you're giving them that, and I thought that was a great part of the book. Thank you. Thank you. I think um, what I like is, I've read a lot of wrestling books, like you say, and, and they're of varying quality, and um, I think what I like is, I, I like to find out something new, I like to find out something different, uh, I like to find out something that I've never, I never learned before, you know, I want, I want something back for what I've paid for the book, and I think, hopefully, I'm hoping people um, we'll find that from this. Um, it's not every page there's a, a new revelation or anything like that. And on, on, on some of the big questions about Adonis, there are no easy answers. You know, why did he do the gay gimmick? Um, you, you speak to some people and they say because he wanted to. You speak to other people and they say because Vince McMahon forced him to. His answer's probably somewhere in the middle. Um, but there's 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 enough um, new information there that I think people will really take something from it, like um, the the origin of where his name came from, where what territory he was planning to go to um, if he hadn't died, um, and and yeah, and and things like that. You mentioned speaking to Rip Rogers, who was a uh, very colorful character, talking to him about the Portland area. Uh, what was it like getting to talk with Rip, and who were some of the names? it just kind of stood out to you as uh, kind of interesting you know personalities when you were working on this book yeah so rip was like you say rip was a real character um and and he didn't hold back with some of his some of his descriptions um some of the questions i put to him um you know he was very very uh brisk with his answers i asked him his opinion um this is a question i put to all of them uh everyone i i interviewed i you know i said what what did you make of his gay gimmick when when you turned on the telly or, or one of your co-wrestlers um, told you that he was now doing this what did you think he had just had a fascinating ins insight fascinating insight that you know if it made you money why not do it and he he spoke a lot about the the um, the ribs that were pulled he used uh, Adonis used to pull a lot of ribs on people particularly on uh, rookies on new wrestlers including Rogers himself Rogers memories of working uh, in Portland were mainly about being a young upstart and having to um, uh, having to kind of earn his due and wait wait to be told what to do. He was a um, uh, he was a, a babyface. Uh, no, he was a heel, and Adonis was a babyface. And so they had this amusing situation where the heel um, was supposed to lead the babyface through the match, but 
Adonis was more experienced and he was more opinionated so he wanted to lead the match and backstage Piper had to intervene between the two of them and say you know Adrian you got to relax you got to let you got to let Rogers learn how to lead someone through a match if he's going to be if he's going to be a heel so um, yeah he had a lot of memories of kind of being uh, being teased and being um, and being put through his put through his paces by Adonis and, and the crew that were, were working in Portland at that time. In terms of um, people who were the most interesting, there's probably a couple of characters that your listeners wouldn't have heard of in the book that I've interviewed um, that were really interesting that give a little bit of a different perspective. Um, one of them is there's a very very famous comic book uh, writer and artist uh, called Gilbert Hernandez, and um, that name may not mean anything. Um, to a wrestling fan, but uh, comic fans uh, will have heard of him. And he wrote a comic book in 1986, um, a biographical comic book about uh, meeting Adonis. And that I, find, I think um, that chapter is really fascinating because it gives a bit of an outsider's perspective. This um, comic book uh, writer and artist um, was a wrestling fan growing up in California and watched all the wrestlers including gorgeous Keith Franks and then 10 years later went to a WWF event in 1986 and it dawned on him that these were the same people that he was watching except obviously Adonis looked very very different and he was acting very different and he had some interesting comments about um, working on that uh, working on that comic book and what it had been like to uh, to meet Adonis and there's another guy called Joe Kolkowitz who I interviewed who is a, a sports agent who's still operating um, and he is a guy who spent a lot of the 80s recruiting bodybuilders and pro wrestlers into um, movies and uh, TV and adverts and um, Adonis was one of his clients and uh, would have would have done more work with him had he not passed away when he did um, uh, this is the guy Joe Kolkowitz who who got um, Tiger Chung Lee uh, into several films uh, including films like Eddie Murphy film The Golden Child and I think he got Outback Jack of all people he got him some adverts and um, yeah Adonis was one of his clients as well which I which I wasn't aware of well as we said you know the book is you know very well written I really enjoyed it and got to learn more about Adrian Adonis like I said most of my stuff was his uh, you know run in the WWF as adorable Adrian Adonis now, for our listeners who are interested, you said the book just came out. Where can they purchase the book, and where can they find you on social media? Uh, I am on social media on at Elul Cool J. So it's uh, it's a name that I've been stuck with for many years. E double L U L Cool J. Um, so at Elul Cool J. Uh, I am on Twitter. I'm very active at the moment. I'm the guy tweeting about this book. So if you're not sure, that's probably me. Um, it's uh, the book is available on Amazon, um, uh, whether whatever country you're in, in the UK, in the US, in Canada, in Australia, it's available there. It is live from today. Uh, it's available in paperback and it's available as an ebook, which you can read obviously on a tablet or in a Kindle, um, and uh, very reasonably priced, I might say as well. And the book, of course, is called Flowers for Adrian: The Life and Death of Adrian Adonis. Uh, John, I'd like to thank you for joining us uh, this week. Very fascinating interview, a great book, as I said, and I'm going to pass the mic over to Glenn. This was a fast-moving hour of conversation about the pro-wrestling life of Adrian Adonis. A big thank you to John Alul and, of course, my co-host, Grizzle Vet Mike McCurdy. I'm Glenn Broggett. You've been listening to Wrestling Memory.